Well, good morning, everyone, once again. Christ the Word Church. Today's going to be a little bit different because when I began preparing the sermon, I thought and I was hopeful that we'd be in the school. But we can start this today. We're, We're starting a new series today. And before we get into the series, I want to preface the series with a little bit of an introduction about what you can expect from this new body, this new church. And so there's, I literally wrote in my notes, the first line is the introduction to the introduction. So we're going to have an introduction to the introduction. So the sermon part will be maybe a little bit abbreviated, but uh, it's still the Word of God. I just want to make a few comments at the beginning as kind of a foundation about what this church is all about. And I'm going to start by telling a little bit of a story. A long time ago, there was a, an actor who was at a benefit. It was a dinner party. A lot of uh, Hollywood types were there in the industry. He was a stage actor, so he really had an eloquent voice and, and a way about him, a good stage presence. And someone asked him, would you give a, a quick impromptu performance? And he said, sure, we're, that's what we're here for. So he stood up and he let the crowd decide. He said, does anyone have anything they'd like me to recite? Or like me to perform. No one had any suggestions. One person in the back, and I don't know how he got in there, but he was an old preacher. He said, I want to hear you recite the 23rd Psalm. And the guy opened himself up up to it, so he said, and he knew it. He says, okay, I can do that. So the actor got up and he recited the psalm. And he was very eloquent and elegant, and his timing was perfect, and his delivery was right on point. And at the end of the 23rd Psalm, There was a great round of applause in the room. And now he looked back at the old preacher who kind of threw him a curveball and he said, now I want you to say it to the old preacher. And he wasn't expecting that. But the preacher said, well, I know the psalm and sure I can recite it. So he stood up and he he kind of shuffled over and he began to recite the 23rd psalm. And a few lines in, his voice kind of cracked and broke And his delivery wasn't really that good. And he finished it. And there was... (laughs) There was no applause. But there was not a dry eye in the room. And so the actor got up, feeling his own emotions, and he said, I just recited the psalm. And there was great applause because I reached your ears and I reached your... your... uh, heart. But... The difference is that I knew the psalm, he said. But that man over there knew the shepherd. And so the word shared with another person from a person who knows the shepherd is even that much more powerful, right? You don't have to have the the best delivery. and It's not about the preacher and how he says the words. It's the words. That's where the power is, right? So that's kind of how I wanted to start to say the power of God and salvation is the the Word of God, not the preacher. And I know that my stage presence is like no other, trust me. I understand that, right? (laughs) But it's really not about me as a person. It's about the words that I'm saying. And with God's grace and with His help, that's what we'll be focused on here at Christ the Word. My heart for ministry, ministry is for you to know the shepherd too. To really know the shepherd. And we do that through his scriptures, by knowing the scriptures. 
So whether you know this or not yet, you're really part of a good thing here at Christ the Word Church. And it's exciting. Anytime God starts something new, it's, it's exciting, it's fun, it's kind of scary at times, but, but here we are, and God has brought us to, uh, to this place in this moment just for this time. And we'll be having some new people come in as we go, and God's bringing them all. He's, he's the one that builds this church. So I just wanted to give you a glimpse of what you're becoming part of in this congregation. So our focus to know is to know God through the scriptures. And to do that, we must first know the scriptures. This is why God gave us the Bible. Why would he do that? He did it. There must have been a real purpose for us to know him, to know who he is. He's revealed himself to us through his prophets, through the written word, through the life and death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. He wants to be known. The Bible says God is spirit. He's invisible. But he lets himself be known. He could have just been silent for all eternity. And how could we know him? How, how would we? By, except by looking at the stars or looking at a tree and wondering. But he's allowed himself to be revealed through different modes and different ways. And especially through his son, Jesus. And so, Lord willing, with your time here at Christ the Word Church, you'll know the Bible better than you've ever known it. Which means then you're going to know Jesus better than ever you've ever known him. And so with our first slide, I might just do this, Jake, because so, you don't have the transcript. <clears throat> a couple quick distinctives of a church like Christ the Word. This is not the only church that does this, okay? But they're rare to find. And it's been on my heart for probably, I don't know how many years, probably 10 years, that if God ever moved, that he would place me in a, a situation like this, and he has, uh, that this is the kind of church that I would really be an honor, it would really be an honor for me to, to help lead. So number one, <clears throat> our method of preaching is expository. Has anyone ever heard that word? Expository, Jake. It just means to expose. We're exposing the word. We're exposing the scriptures, the meaning of the text. And I, I know people like to say we want to really get into the word and dig into the word. But then it really doesn't happen. So we're going to be focused on expository preaching. Some people call it, uh, what's the other word for it? Exposition, Ex exegetical. exegetical. It just means ex, that preface, that, that word ex, ex in the Greek means to bring out. We want to bring out the meaning of the word. So that's what we'll be focused on. Pastor and author Tim Challies, he's got a blog uh, online. He had a few things to say about expository preaching, as many people do. But he wants to make a few points, and these are quick. His point is that the word of God sanctifies the church. That's what washes the body, is the Word of God. Not any programs or anything else we do as man to try to help the Word along. It's the Word of God that sanctifies the church, the truth of Scripture. The Word of God sets the agenda. I don't set the agenda. Uh, strong personalities within the church don't set the agenda. The Word of God sets the agenda in an exegetical church, an expository church. The role of the preacher is to explain the meaning of the Word of God. That's pretty simple. It sounds simple, right? Not to draw attention to himself, nor to stay relevant too much with the culture where it brings us off track from the Word. Some churches want to be too relevant, I think. And then they get away from the Word and become more like the world. Well, we want to be like Jesus. And that means being different from the world, not more like the world, right? His role is not to present funny stories, but to present Moses and David and Matthew, and Paul, and Peter, and the rest of the Bible's authors, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Word of God sustains the spotlight in a church like this. The preacher should start in the Word and stay in the Word. 
never skipping a word. Simply put, an expository preaching, it exposes the text of Scripture. The Word of God is living and active. Like Hebrews 4.12, we have this t-shirt here, and on the back of our t-shirt it says Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It really cuts to the heart. Better than any person could. The Word of God is where our power and our authority lies. We're built on that authority. It's, it does not need improvement. It cannot be enhanced. It doesn't need the preacher's help in any way. Now, it can be delivered better. And by God's grace, again, uh, I'm trying my best, and, and I'll hopefully get better as he blesses me. But it's not the delivery that matters most. It's what is said, because that's God's word. <clears throat> the gospel is the very power of God into salvation. Romans 1 tells us that. And the preacher should not meddle too much with it. Because we're going to have a how to study the Bible boot camp class at some point. And one of my points in there is that once you change the meaning of Scripture, it's not Scripture. If you add something and it says something else, it's not Scripture. It's not the message God intended to deliver. So we have to be careful how much the preacher meddles with the Word. The preacher must not handle it carelessly by weaving into, into it too much of himself. The Word of God is not powerful because of the preacher, but in spite of him. And as I, by God's grace, explain the scriptures to you, I'm going to make it simple and clear as much as I can, but I'm not going to dumb it down either. I want you to get the full course of meat that the Holy Spirit has delivered to the apostles that wrote the scriptures, but I'm not going to dumb it down. I think we should trust the Holy Spirit that he will give us the understanding, right? If he's powerful enough to save us, he's powerful enough for us to understand what he wants us to understand. So that was a long number one. These are all quicker. Number two, we're connected with sound, we're concerned with sound theology. Because if you think of it, if anyone asks you a question about your faith, your answer will be your theology. And if it's bad theology, are they going to find Jesus? I don't know. We're concerned with correct theology. And that's, of course, based on the scripture. Number three, we get the gospel right. The gospel is that we are all sinners. But the only way to heaven to be for salvation is Jesus Christ, and he's the only way. And we can't add to it, we cannot earn it. It's a gift that we receive by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And it's all to God's glory. It's simple, we don't want to complicate the gospel. People still out there believe that, well, you still have to do things and be a good person. You will do those good things if you're truly saved. You'll want to do them. And when you don't, you'll wrestle against the fact that you're not doing it well enough. But that doesn't mean you're not saved. That's a good thing. That's a, it's the evidence that you are. Number four, Jesus Christ is at the center of all we do. That means nothing else is at the center of all we do. Because we can get, and I've been in church life my entire life, we can get so sidetracked on getting into the elementary school or doing something else that we lose track of Jesus, even if it's for a week. If it becomes all about getting into the school for one week, we've lost sight of Jesus for that week. So everything we do must be centered around Jesus Christ. Number five, we hold each other accountable. We give correction in a God-honoring way. That's biblical. In love. But we also should take correction in a God-honoring way. If someone's coming to you and saying, I'm telling you, I see something here, and I want to correct you according to the scripture in love, because I love you, we should then take that in a good way and appreciate that. Hey, my brother is trying to keep me sharp, to bring me back into the flock. It's very important. 
Because we're a family. We're a spiritual family. And we should do that for one another. We love each other. Number six, we're not here to entertain or to elevate ourselves or to please the crowd. We're not an, uh, we can be entertained in church. That's certainly true. But it's not our focus. We're not to look like the world. We're to look different than the world. We're here to worship Jesus Christ and to grow in him. That's why we should come to church, to offer a sacrifice of praise. We come to church because we need that bread of life. We need the water, the living water to sustain us for this week. We don't come for us. We're not going to fill out a, a, yep, a Yelp. Uh, what do they call those things? How Five-star review on our way out, how we did and everything. It's not about that. It's about Jesus Christ. We come because of him. We come to hear from him through his word and to worship the Father through the Spirit. That's what it's about. And number seven, we show the love of Christ to all. And we do this by imitating Jesus to everyone we see. We, we, I feel a lot of love in this church body, don't you? It is like a family, let alone the fact that we're meeting in homes. But that's what the early church did anyway. And so with that, today we begin our first major series. Or a survey, some people call it a survey. Through one of the books of the inspired word of God. When I say survey, I don't mean like a questionnaire, like you fill out a survey. I mean, our first slide here. I mean this kind of survey. We have the surveyor going out on a big piece of land, and he's got to put a map together. He's got to know where the, the valleys are and the hills and the streams and the different bodies of water. This surveyor is going out, and he's looking for what he's dealing with. And by the time he leaves, he's going to know exactly what he's dealing with. He's going to survey that plot. And so to survey means to look at or examine carefully and appraise. So we'll be examining carefully this book and, and appraising it. You know what appraising means? It means to see how much value there, there is. Or what is this really, what am I looking at here? You're going to appraise a house. What's involved? How many rooms? How many square feet? Those types of things. We're going to know once we leave what we've surveyed. And so uh, when this person like us, we're like a surveyor. We go, we're, we're coming wanting information and we're going to leave with that information. And so we set out today on this surveying journey together. We'll be traveling through together the Gospel of John. And I've entitled this series Incarnation. Because John tells us the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the main point for John. God became man and he lived among us. I mean, just to say that is unbelievable. Unbelievable. God became man and dwelt among us. We take that for granted so much these days. We just know it. It's Christian. That's what we believe. But for someone who's never heard of that before, they may have their own idea of what God is or who he is. They say, God became a man. How does that work? It's an immense idea. And that's what the word incarnation means. It means the Latin word in means into. And carnis, the Latin word carnis, and maybe if you know Spanish, the word carne means meat or flesh, into flesh. That's what incarnation means. The English word carnal. You have a carnal mind, you have a fleshly mind, right? Concerned about the physical aspect of things. And so incarnation means to come into the flesh. This is what Jesus did. And it's John's driving point. God became a man. This may go without saying, but a survey like this will take a good amount of time. We're not going to be done in two weeks. It'll be a long road trip. 
But don't worry, we'll take plenty of stops. We'll take plenty of breaks along the way. Just like a road trip. We've been across country uh, probably many times by now to Florida or, or Texas. We went this way. That's the short way across country. We didn't go the long way. But it's still a pretty long road trip. But we take plenty of stops. And those stops will come in the form of shorter mini, uh, minor series or single week breaks. But the major highway we'll be traveling for the foreseeable future will be the Gospel of John. And so with that, I want to open in prayer as we begin our journey. Once again, dear Heavenly Father, we've come here today because we want to hear from you. And we do that best by prayer and through your word. So Lord, prepare our hearts for this journey we're going to take together so that we understand the overarching points, but also the small points through the, during the way. So that we know you, you better, your son better, the spirit better, and I pray that the spirit helps us understand and be mindful and be alert because this is living water. This is the bread of life and we want to consume it. So it makes us a brighter light for you in this world we live in. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in 1946, don't raise your hands if you heard this when it came out, Nat King Cole sang a song called Route 66. Are we at least familiar with the song? Route 66. He said it was where you could get your kicks on Route 66. Have you heard of the song? Okay, I always ask the younger guys. Back then, 10 years before President Eisenhower established the interstate highway system in 1956, Route 66 was the premier thoroughfare across the country. Well, it was from Chicago to L.A. And it was uh, over about 2,200 miles. There were plenty of stops along the way. And that, as Nat King Cole put it, I'm not going to sing it, but you can remember the lines. He said, you go through St. Louis to Joplin, Missouri. Oklahoma City, he said, looks mighty pretty. You see Amarillo, Gallup, New Mexico. Flagstaff, Arizona, and he said, don't forget Winona. Here's the map of it. Kingman, Barstow, and San Bernardino. You start over here in Chicago, go 2,200 miles to get to L.A. Long road trip, but there's a lot of stops along the way. We'll take some breaks to stretch our legs. We'll take some longer breaks, some shorter breaks. Just like a long cross-country road trip like Route 66. But that major highway we'll be traveling for ourselves will be the Gospel of John. And so with that, are you ready to go on the trip? Are you ready? Okay. Let's dive in. Uh, the historical context. I'm going to start with the historical context of John. <clears throat> Along with the book of Romans, the Gospel of John has often been called one of the twin towers of the New Testament. It's the fourth largest book in the New Testament after Luke, Matthew, and Acts. It's packed with theology and it presents the case for Jesus as the Son of God, Savior of the world. It's widely recommended that new believers read through the Gospel of John first when they become believers in Christ. And it's written by John, a disciple of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John is one of five books that John wrote. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and also Revelation. John was the son of Zebedee. He was the brother of James. And he and his his brother were called the Sons of Thunder. He was also called John the Beloved and John the Revelator. He was a fisherman and the youngest of the disciples. But in his humility, he never refers to himself in his gospel. Instead, he calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. 
or he'll refer to himself as just another disciple. John was one of Jesus' inner circle, along with Peter and James. He was one of the three closest disciples of Jesus. He was the disciple whom Jesus entrusted the care of his mother at the cross. He said, son, behold your mother, and mother, behold your son. He had one of the closest perspectives and relationships to Jesus, and his history had it. John was the only disciple not to die a martyr's death, but was exiled to the island of Patmos, where he later wrote Revelation. This gospel takes a different approach than the other three, which are called synoptic gospels, which just means a synopsis. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are a synopsis of Jesus' life, and they pretty much follow the same track. John's different. John writes his gospel with the intention of displaying the glory of the person of Jesus Christ as Son of God. He's more concerned about the question of who Jesus is in a divine way. And in fact, 90%, give or take, of John's gospel material is not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So it is unique. Matthew's audience was the Jews. Mark's was the Romans. Luke was the Greeks. But John wrote to the world. Uh, A quick note here, from this point on, for uniformity and for clarity and accuracy, I'll be preaching mainly from the ESV, English Standard Version of the Bible. I believe it stays faithful to the original text and it's very readable. Uh, But the best Bible to use is always the one that you'll actually read, so feel free to use any translation you like. But if you'd like to follow along, maybe with the slides or word for word, uh, I'll be using the ESV in case you're wondering. It's just, I think... Less confusing if I use different versions on the slides and you have one Bible and it doesn't quite look the same. So just in case you'd like to know, that's the one I'll be using. And I'd like to also strongly encourage you to bring your physical Bibles to church. I think it's really important because this has always helped me in the past. I'm trying to grab it. Remembering Scripture. One of the best ways I can remember Scripture is that I can remember what, where I saw the Scripture. You know, John 3.16. I know it's like on the left page... Uh, middle on the right column, you know, you can just kind of, it just helps you understand and helps you retain. It's also good to know where the books in the Bible are. Old Testament, New Testament, just about where and everything. Some people say, well, if you crack it open about in the, begin, in the middle, you, you get to Psalms and little tricks like that. And I do want to go through that, how to study the Bible boot camp soon, because it covers a lot of the basics about how to study the Bible. Because we are word-based here at Christ the Word, and I want people to be Familiar with your Bibles, more familiar than you've ever been with your Bibles, because it is God's Word. This also trains us to focus the sermon as an interaction, a conversation between you and God's Word, with me, by God's grace, facilitating that. Because it really, when you come to church, it should be a conversation, interaction with you and Him. And I'm just here to mediate that. And you could look down and maybe look to the next page or, or so or the, to the next paragraph, pass the slides and get some more context as the Spirit leads you as well. So have that. If you could, bring your Bibles. It's also nice to hear pages flipping in church as long as it's not the TV guide. <laughs> we don't even have TV guides anymore, do we? But bring your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, ask us. We'll get you one to keep, okay? And so I thought... And I want you to think of this. If you were John the Apostle and you sat down to write the gospel that the Holy Spirit put on your heart, where would you start? That's a big beginning. 
a big story. Where do I start? I'm one of the closest apostles to Jesus. I've been there the entire time. I saw him raised from the dead. I've seen him die on the cross, and I've seen all the miracles. Where do I start? Where do I begin? And he probably just did, and he did this. He sat down somewhere and took his quill pen and a parchment and sat at the table and thought, I have to write the words now. What will I start with? I wonder if he had, you always wonder these things, the human part of John, you know, the Holy Spirit's leading him. Did he say, well, maybe I'll start this way and then he crumpled it up and he threw it away. No, that's not good. And he starts a different thing and he crumples that parchment up and throws it away. Or did he have on his heart exactly what the Spirit said? I just wonder how that moment was. So we look at our main text now. We'll see how John did start his gospel. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. We'll go through two verses today. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So John decided to use the opening of his gospel message of Jesus Christ using the words, in the beginning. I guess that's a good place to start, right? Does that sound familiar to us, though? In ministry, I always thought it was powerful to ask the question, does that sound familiar? You probably hear that because I say it all the time. What does it sound like? It sounds like something else. And that's how people learned back in the first century and before that, too, by repetition. They went through the scriptures in the synagogues or in the temple, or wherever they would do it. And the way the Spirit taught people was through his prophets, and through his apostles, and through Jesus Christ. But he did it in a way so that people could remember things. Because back then, not everybody had a Bible. They heard the Word. That's why in Romans 10, we're told that salvation comes by hearing. Because people normally just heard the Word. Spoken. So it's harder if you don't have notes that you've taken, or if you don't have a Bible that you carry with you. So the Spirit knows that, and And he's used different mechanisms to help us remember in a human way and to remind us of things. So when John says, in the beginning, he begins his gospel. Now these words he wrote in Greek, and they had a translation of the Bible too. I remember I told you that months ago. It was called the Septuagint. It was the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. So John was very familiar with the Septuagint, the Greek translation. He wrote the same Greek words that he saw in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. So our minds just automatically go to Genesis 1.1, because whenever we hear the words, in the beginning, that's what we should think of as Christians. So we think of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think of the opening line, the great opening lines of literature. Charles Dickens wrote a book, A Tale of Two Cities. Some of you may, may know the first line. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Have you heard that? So now if I wanted to write a book, a novel, but I didn't want it to be anything like A Tale of Two Cities, and I start out by saying something like, it was the brightest day, it was the darkest day. Some of you probably think, that sounds just like A Tale of Two Cities. He's ripping off Charles Dickens. But if I wouldn't want you to think of that book, I wouldn't do that. If I did want you to think of that book, I probably would. John does this purposefully. He wrote the gospel in Greek. He used the same words in Greek that the Greek scripture had for Genesis 1-1. In the beginning. 
That's just the point. You're first writing if you're taking notes. If you don't have notes, lift your hand. We'll get them to you. The first note says, John wants us to think of Genesis 1.1. That's his point. But why does he want us to think of Genesis 1.1? Why would he do that? He, he probably thought there, maybe it took minutes, maybe hours or days. How am I going to start the gospel of John? He came to this. It's a purposeful thing. He wants us to point back to the beginning. If we look back at Genesis 1.1, as the point on a line, like a fulcrum, you know what a fulcrum is, it's that middle part, like in a teeter-totter, where the board kind of goes back and forth. <clears throat> we can see Genesis 1-1 as this fulcrum here, as the beginning of creation. So Moses, who wrote Genesis, starts here at the fulcrum and moves forward. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and this happened, and that happened, and then off we go. But John starts here at the fulcrum and he looks backwards. What happened before the creation? What was going on back then? Theologians have this concept named the anteriority of time. No one's going to remember that. The point is, people have thought about this. And that word just means that something precedes something else. So in this case, what happened before creation precedes time itself. And John's talking about that, where God is. Back there. God is outside of time. He created everything. He's not part of creation. He's outside of that. He transcends that. So John 1 is showing us a doctrine of Jesus' eternal nature. Outside of time. Sure, Jesus was a man. Fully human. But God's showing us he's not just human. He's also fully God. How do we know that? A characteristic of Jesus, his eternality. Am I doing this? is unique. It shows us... It'll come back in a second. He's showing us Jesus' pre-existence, which means that Jesus was not created. There we go. Jesus was not a created being. And your next note, here we go, says, Jesus is eternal with no beginning and no end. Now, if he was just a man, that couldn't be true. No beginning. When I was a kid, I would think back, try to think back, how, how far does that go? And then if you, you can't comprehend infinity or going forward in time. We're going to be in heaven forever. Well, you could drive yourself crazy just thinking about that. Eternal. No beginning, no end. We could also read it, this as, in the beginning was the word already, or was, in the beginning, the word already was. It already existed. He already existed. By the time the beginning happened, Jesus was already in existence. John's making this point. He's looking backwards in time, before creation. And he reiterates this in verse 2. He says, he was in the beginning with God. So he makes this point a second time within a breath. This is very important. As far back as the Father goes, the Son goes. In the pre-existence before creation began, Jesus was already there. Later in John 8, 58, we remember this story. Jesus speaking with the Pharisees. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. Here Jesus uses the name of God for himself. And immediately the Pharisees wanted to stone him to death for blasphemy. Why would they do that? Because they knew what he was doing. He was making himself equal with God. Using God's name, saying you were around before Abraham. Abraham lived 1,600 years before Christ. 
How could he say you were there before Abraham? You're just a man. He was making the point. No, I'm more than a man. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, on the night before he died, he prayed to the Father about his time with him in his pre-existence. John 17, 5, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So we believe Jesus, right? He's telling us he had glory with the Father before the world existed. He transcends time. This doctrine is unlike some others who claim to be in the Christian faith, who claim to believe in Jesus, the true Christian Jesus. Among others, the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses do not adhere to this doctrine that Jesus was eternal or is eternal. They believe he has a, a created nature. He was a created being. But if he was created, that means that he's not divine. They do not hold to his eternal existence. They believe that he came into existence, that he was created Orthodox Christianity, that just means ordinary Christianity from, from beginning, has always believed that Jesus is not a created being. He's the creator. And how people answer the question, who is Jesus, will say a lot about their beliefs and how they line up with Scripture. So we have to remember, we have to make sure, do we have the right Jesus? Last week we asked, do you know Jesus accurately? In Matthew 16, Jesus is talking with his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? He wants to know, what are they saying about me out there? They say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? It made them think. These were just young guys. They were probably in their late teens, some of them. Maybe early 20s. This was all new to them. This man shows up and he's doing miracles and walking on water and he's asking them, who do you think I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter pipes up and he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And at one time, at least, Peter got it right. Because Peter had a big mouth, but he got that one right. We can't just say we believe in Jesus and then make him into something he isn't. By doing that, we make God into our image. By doing that, we worship an idol that we've made for ourselves. So we have to ask the question, does your Jesus have the same characteristics as the biblical Jesus? Because on the last day, Judgment Day, questions like this will be separating the sheep from the goats, the believers from the non-believers. The question, who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? We have to have the right Jesus. And John continues answering that question later in verse 1. I put here verse 1a. Whenever you see this, this is part of a little teaching moment. This just means the beginning part of the verse, the first part of the verse. There's no real hard cutoff as where A ends and B begins, 1a, 1b. This, this just means giving full trans, transparency. There's more to this verse over here. So I, have dots. I just want to handle the word uh, well. So if you ever see that, 1a, there's more to that verse. Go look it up. We'll get to it, but just in case you see that again. Verse 1a. In the beginning was the word. So we've looked at in the beginning. So now this other part was the word. So you might be thinking, well, what does John mean by the word anyway? He's saying word a lot. What does the word mean anyway? Well, he tells us later in John 1.14, he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. What does that sound like? Obviously, Jesus. The word became flesh. 
and dwelt among us. He's talking about Jesus. So we reflect in our name, Christ the Word. He's God in human flesh. And that's why, why is it that Jesus is called the Word? Why do you think he's called the Word of God? It's, it's kind of unique. Well, it's because your next note says, Jesus is the expression of God to man. What do words do? When you think about what a word is, it's really just a sound that our throat makes because air from our lungs pushes up through our vocal cords and someone hears some noise I'm making. That's why languages from other countries just sound like blah, blah, blah. We don't understand what they're saying. It just sounds like a bunch of noisy words, sounds. All words are sounds, but they're expressing something. And somehow, God created us and he had the thought of, I can, I can uh, let you understand what is in my mind and in my heart by making sounds through my mouth to you. And if it's the word of God, it can change your life. The word is an expression. The word of a person is their thoughts. It can communicate their feelings, their emotions, what they want in life, what their cares are. If we were all mute and we, were all, we didn't know how to write or read, how would we communicate all those deep things? The word is the expression that we use to communicate our deepest thoughts, our, our deepest feelings and hurts and loves, and so the word, and the Greek word is logos. Christ is God's logos to us. His expression to us. His word to us. So he's talking about Jesus. It's been said that words explain minds. And in 1 Corinthians we're told that who can know the depths of God unless we have some way to understand what, who God is what he's like, what he wants for us. And God has made himself known through things like his word and the scripture. And also, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we as believers have the mind of Christ. How is that possible if we don't know Jesus? It is possible because we know Jesus and because we know his word. So the life of Jesus explained the Father to us, you could be, think of it that way, by reflecting him perfectly as a man. Somebody once said, if I were... If I wanted to try to communicate something to a, a, an anthill, and all the ants are building this anthill, and I really want to get in there and show them what I mean, how would I do it? And, and somebody said, well, I'd become an ant. Then I would, I would know what I know now, and I, and I want to communicate that with them, and they would really understand me best if I was one of them. That's what God did for us. Think of all the different ways people view God in the world. They think he is a, a big stone statue. Or they think he's the great spirit. Or they think there's spirits in uh, the trees or in the creation. Or they think of the God, these gods and those gods. They all have a different perspective of God. How are we supposed to know him? But, but in a way that he explains himself to us. So he spoke to Moses in a burning bush. That was pretty good. He got a real clear uh, message from that. He gave prophets words. They wrote them down. Now we have books of the Old Testament. Now we go to the New Testament. And Jesus shows up and he says, I'm going to show them who I am. Because Jesus said, if you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's, I'm who he is. I'm his character. I'm the perfect reflection of him. Because the Bible says God is spirit. And Colossians 1.15 helps us understand. It says, speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. 
Bible tells us God the Father has no body, as if he were a man. He's spirit, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And Colossians 1.19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's God on earth. Your next note says, Jesus Christ is the Word of God. And that's what it means to be the Word of God. His expression to us. The way that He has determined to let us know His heart for us and His will for us. He's the Word of God because He's the expression of God to man. What an expression. You try to give someone, how can I express to you my love? Well, you write him a card. How can I express my love? You buy him a Starbucks gift card. God says, how do I express my love and my personality, my person to these people? I sent myself, my son. I sent a person to you. What a loving expression. The first century Jews understood this idea of God, of the word coming to people. Over and over again, the Old Testament recounts this idea with the prophets. Think of it. We read, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Or the word of the Lord came to Hosea or came to Ezekiel. The word came to Moses and said, and then we have the scripture. They understood this idea. So when John begins his gospel in the beginning and goes right to Jesus as the word, he's saying the word came to us also. God communicates to us by his word. His word is his expression to us. And he most fully spoke through his son, Jesus, to us. Hebrews 1, one of my favorite verses about this. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, the prophets, by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Hebrews is in the New Testament. It said, Long ago, God spoke to us in these ways, through a burning bush and through the prophets. But they said, but in these last days he's spoken to us through his son. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples saw Jesus Christ. And they saw Elijah. And they saw Moses. And they saw Jesus glorified. While Elijah represented the prophets, all the prophets of old. And Moses represented the law. Those are the two pillars that the Jewish people followed for all those years, thousands of years, until Jesus came in the person. And a cloud came down on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when the cloud receded, there was only one remaining, Jesus. Elijah was gone. Moses was gone. And the voice of God said, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him now. You've had the prophets lead you up to this far. You've had the law as a tutor, the Bible says, lead you this far. Now I want you to listen to Jesus, my son. And that's what Hebrews is saying here. Long ago, in many ways, many times, Jesus, or the Lord spoke to our fathers by the prophets and these other things, the law. But in these last days, he wants us to listen to Jesus, his son. The word of God is the Lord's expression to us. And Jesus is the Father's greatest expression to us. Next in the verse, we have in the beginning, we've got that, was the word... Okay? And the word was with God. It's just one word. There's so much theology in just the one verse. That phrase, was with God, is important. In the Greek, it's, it, it reads, prostantheon. I know Jake probably has heard that before. Prostantheon. 
It's a Greek preposition. You know what a preposition is? This denotes the meaning of being active toward. So if you're active toward something, it's just a preposition. It's a funny word. It doesn't just mean to be nearby or around, you're hanging around or there. It means you're actively toward something. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was active toward God. Active, there's something going on here. It's act, activity and in a, in a certain direction toward each other. It denotes intimate communion. I, It'll come back in a second. It denotes intimate communion. The Father and the Son are eternally and perfectly united. And it's in the state before time began, this eternal state. So they have an eternal expressive relationship. They're expressive. They're, per, they're persons. This phrase doesn't just mean that they're nearby. It means they're also, as the Greek goes, standing face to face. It's the idea of being face to face with someone. Being on equal footing with someone. This, this is a dense verse. But it gives us so much in as far as who God is. What is he like? He's eternal. Jesus Christ is, the, is God in flesh. Uh, he's face to face with the Father. There's active communication and communion here. They're on equal footing. So why is that important? John's teaching us another doctrine here about Jesus. And the word doctrine just means teaching. He's teaching us something else about Jesus. And which is... You're next writing, God the Father and God the Son are distinct equals with different roles. They have different roles. God the Father didn't come to earth, but he sent the Son. The Son sent the Spirit. The Father sent the Son and the Spirit. They have different roles. The Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross. Jesus died on the cross as a man, flesh. The Holy Spirit is spirit. God the Father is spirit. Different roles, but equals. And they're distinct. Distinct persons. They're unified in the Godhead of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, some belief systems that claim to believe in Jesus deny this. They claim there's one God who sometimes reveals himself as the Father, sometimes reveals himself as the Son, and sometimes as the Spirit. This has been called modalism. You may have heard of it. That God had different modes of existence, just, but he's just one person showing up in different modes. But again, Orthodox Christianity, ordinary Christianity throughout the years and millennia has held that God is triune, trinity. And your next writing says, God is a trinity, three distinct persons in one God. Unique Christian doctrine. The Father, Son, and Spirit are all divine Divine just means they have godness, for lack of a better term. The qualities of God, the qualities of deity. They're eternally co-equal. They're eternally co-existent. They've always been there together. They're of the same essence, the same godness stuff, whatever that is. It's not like being a human being. It's, it's different. It's otherly. Not three gods. Not three gods. One God in three persons. We just sing a song. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Our, our minds cannot understand fully God, but he's revealed to us these things in Scripture. So John's making the point that when he says the word was with God, it's a small phrase, he's saying they're distinct, but they're equal. These are big, big ideas. They're very foundational. We don't talk about them as much. Maybe we just take for granted that we know these things. 
but we have to hit them if we're going through the gospel word by word. And he further makes this point that there are three distinct persons or that God is eternal and they're distinct in the last phrase here. The word was God. Your next writing is right away says, Jesus is divine. He's God the Son. He's the second person of the Trinity. And it's really interesting that the Greek actually reads like this. Literally reads like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. It interposes the Word was God, God was the Word. You can do that in Greek depending on what you want to emphasize. And I think the Greek author who wrote it, well, John wrote it, I think usually you put the, the first word as the emphatic word. God was the word. He's saying what the word was God. God was the word. He's divine. We're talking about Jesus Christ. He's emphasizing this. He's using very few words but packing a lot into it. And some of the early English Bibles do still have it that way. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and God was the Word. Some early English Bibles still have it that way. But it can be read either way. In any case, in this one verse, John's making these monumental Christian points of doctrine. That's why we're only getting through two verses today. That both the Father and the Son are co-equal. They're co-eternal. They have no beginning. Of the same divine essence. They're in eternally perfect communion together with one another, along with the Spirit, yet distinct from one another. The Bible says that God is Spirit. Your next write-in. There's two quick write-ins here. Jesus is the incarnation, there it is, of God. The coming into flesh of God. And the person of Jesus, the man, the human. Jesus Christ, which leads into the second quick write in here. Jesus is the representation of God in the flesh. And so that means Jesus is fully God and fully human. You can't be 50% God and 50%. How would being 50% God work anyway? I don't know how that would work. There's a big term here too. I'm always quizzing Jake because I'm trying to bring him up here. You know what the term is? Uh, The homo deus or the the God man. The God man, yeah, you're, you're really close, which is the same topic. It's called the hypostatic oh, union, yeah, okay? Yeah, I know you knew that. Anyway, yeah, the union of it. The yeah, union. I was, I was in, um... God, Jesus had a, a God nature and a human nature. We don't understand that. But he was fully God and he was fully man. To diminish either of those points would diminish Christ. We had to have a sufficient sacrifice on that cross that day. We had to have a man who suffered temptation went through everything we go through, felt pain and hurt and sorrow, and understood what it was like to be. Not that he didn't understand, he was God. But to show the world, he understands. More than we understand. He had to be a man. If God came down, only God came down and did it, how much of a faith testimony would that be for anyone else who heard the story? Well, that's so easy for God, he's God. Who cares? But when we understand, he was a man that bled and died and felt pain and and felt hunger and thirst, we realized he really did it. And I can relate to that. He didn't have to do that, but he did it. He was fully man. But if he wasn't fully God, 
That sacrifice on the cross wouldn't have been enough for you and me. It was the perfect, infinite, sinless life. Infinite worth on that cross. That's why there's enough for us. His infinite perfection covers our finite sin. If you add all our finite sin up, his infinite perfection covers it. He had to be God. And he also had to be man. And so after all this, why is it important to know all these things? Well, two questions came to mind. Don't you want to know who it is that you're worshiping? Every week, every day of your life? We say we're Christians. Don't you want to know just who you're worshiping? You'd want to know just who you're marrying. You want to know who you're getting into a business relationship with, don't you? You want to know a little bit more about them? And maybe a little bit more if you're going to go into a long-term relationship. Maybe a little bit more if you're going to do more and more with them. You want to know more. Don't you need to know who you're worshiping? Because, who did I mention to it this week? Uh, I was on a phone call. I mentioned what Vody Bauckham said. He said, one of the problems with the American system of churches is that they're filled with People who are passionate about the Jesus they don't know very well. They just have this picture of this person who they've attributed certain characteristics to that they like. He's loving and he's kind and and everything. He's friendly. He's a fuzzy Jesus. And I've attributed those characteristics to this idea of this person and I've named that person Jesus. And that's who I worship on a Sunday. But we don't ascribe the full item list of who Jesus is because we, we don't like the, the fact that he's the judge and he's coming back with a sword in his mouth and he's coming back with eyes of flaming fire to judge the world. We don't like that part so that's, I'm just going to turn away and look at this Jesus. We're making ourselves an idol by doing that. We have to know Jesus. All of Jesus. So that's why knowing who he is, what his nature is, is important. Especially if someone asks you, who is Jesus at work? Barry just had a, he told me something about someone at work. That they were talking about Jesus. Whatever you say might lead them down the wrong path to destruction or might lead them to life. We have to know who we worship. That's why we're looking at this. In the Great Commission, Jesus commanded his disciples to do three things. He said, and actually he says, here's another teaching moment it says as you are going it doesn't really just say go ye therefore it says as you're going he's expecting us to already be going we're already going it's not like we're, we're not going right now we're already going as you go make disciples baptize believers that's the easy part we just dunk them you know their profession of faith they're baptized make disciples how do you make a disciple you spend time with them You teach them, which is the third part. He wants us to make disciples, baptize believers, and to teach. Well, if we don't know the information, what do we teach? And if you don't know the information, how do we disciple? How do we show a younger person in the faith how to be a disciple of Christ if we don't even know how? If we don't know who my Lord is, we just know his name and we know the good parts. Or Or if we don't know him accurately, we need to know him through his word. So that's what we're doing today in order to be able to teach the younger people in the faith. 
The church is the people. That's you. That's me. Our group is the church. What happens in a church building on the Lord's Day, which is today, is primarily for those who already believe. We're showing this in Ephesians 4. Paul says, and he gave the apostles, this is, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus gave certain gifts to the church. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers. For what? To equip the saints. Who are the saints? Believers. He gave these things to us to equip us, the believers. For what? For building up the body of Christ. For us, for our edification. He gave us things like good teachers to edify us. And to build us up. Why? There's more to it. So that we may no longer be children. Children in the faith. Baby Christians. Tossed to and fro by waves. And carried about by every wind of doctrine. Think about it. I mean, I'm, I'm almost, I guess in a few years I'll be 50. I've seen all the winds of doctrine blow through the church over the you know, past couple, few decades. And they're like Christian fads that'll come up. And some will last, you know, six months. Some last a year or two. Some last 10 years. But they always seem to fizzle out. We want to focus on what doesn't fizzle out here at Christ the Word. Mm-hmm. The gospel doesn't fizzle out. The person of Jesus Christ doesn't fizzle out. But that Christian wave or that Christian trend, it will come and it'll go. And it'll probably come back again and it'll go. And it just ebbs and flows. And we get kind of swept away by the wind of doctrine that blows through town. We don't want to have those roots that are just going to be torn out. We want to say, I can see that as a trend. And I, you know, if there's good in it, maybe I'll get some good, but I'm, I'm going to be watchful here. Because if something's new in Christianity, probably, it's probably wrong. <laughs> a lot of preachers have said that through the years. If you found something new that no one's ever heard before, well, you're probably wrong. Why would the Lord do that? Wait 2,000 years to show the real truth or something very new. You know, He is always revealing himself to us, but his scripture is closed. We've got all we need in Scripture, to live the godly life. We're told that also, Paul tells us. And so we don't want to be baby Christians forever. We want to always be growing. We, we can also uh, help from being caught with these deceitful schemes. There are some people that are out there that want to take your money and call themselves Christians. Or they want to lead you down some other path and, and use God's name in vain to do that. The Bible says for shameful gain. Some of them know they're doing it. Some of them don't even know they're doing it. They're self-deceived. But we can be, if we are not babies in the faith, we can see that. So we want to grow in Christ into every way with him. Look what the author of Hebrews says to believers as we get toward the end here. Hebrews 5 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, he's telling these people. He come back and he said, How many years has it been and you're still on the milk? You should be teaching by now, he's saying. This is virtuous. But you need someone to teach you again, he says, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. He's not giving them a compliment here. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child in the faith. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We have to know what's right and what's wrong. We have to be able to see that's good, that's biblical, that's not. How do you know that? Because we know the word. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. He says, you all should know all this stuff already. 
We've got to grow in Christ. And he tells us that that's what we should be doing. In 2 Peter, he says we should always be growing in Christ. If you're 15 or 105, we should still be growing in our faith. I mean, we're all, I believe we're all Christians here. We need to know Jesus. I mean, is that too much to ask, right? We need to know Jesus. We need to know about Jesus. And we need to know the scriptures to be able to know about Jesus. That's where we start, because we should accurately understand, above all else, the God we worship. We should understand the God we worship. And we do that by learning about him through his word. And your life's right, and it's a big one. The overarching theme in John's gospel is that the eternal God himself has become human to save sinners from their sin, their death, their judgment, and ultimately from hell. What love expressed. The eternal God himself has become human to save sinners from their sin, death, judgment, and hell. God became a man in the incarnation. While not laying down his divinity, don't forget, he never stopped being God. He stopped using that to his advantage while on earth. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. He's God with us. Later in this chapter, John 1.14, John tells us, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in the Old Testament, Isaiah 7, the famous passage, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. John the Beloved sat down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write down his account of Jesus. What a big thought. And in the 20th chapter, he gives us the reason he did it. In John 20, he says, he wrote this gospel, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Amen. So I also extend John's charge to you today. Do you believe I believe we all do. We cannot just say we believe in a particular person, give him some attributes we like, and call him Jesus. And that be the real Jesus. And be saved. Because if you trust in something like that, that you've made up for yourself, is that going to save you? Is that Jesus going to save you, the one that you made up in your mind? No, it's not. We have to worship the Jesus. The biblical Christ. And he's more than just your best friend. He is your best friend, but he's more than that. He's almighty God in the flesh. We should have a healthy love for him, a healthy respect for his word, and a healthy fear of him too. We want to know the full Jesus because everyone has a relationship with Jesus, whether they know it or not. It's either a relationship of grace or for some it's a relationship of judgment but we all have a relationship with him and we'll keep searching the scriptures here to learn the truth about Jesus because I don't want you to just know the psalm like that actor did I want you to know the shepherd I want us to be able to answer that question on judgment day when we're asked who do you say that I am you're just going to say he's a, you're a good man you're a good teacher a nice Prophet, you step to the left. I never knew you. 
And he says, who do you say that I am? And like Peter did, you say, you're the son of God. You're the Christ. Jesus will say, step to the right, enter my kingdom. Well done, good and faithful servant. We have to always be thinking, what are we going to say on that day? To answer, who do you say that I am? Please stand with me. Uh, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask Tom to come for the offering time after I pray. We'll have offering at the end and have another song and worship. But we have to be thinking, we do face this, this end of our lives or of the, of the world and, and we have to know who Jesus really is. And so there's joy in his word, and his word is living and active, and it's alive, and it's for us today. It's not a dusty old book. So we'll go through, and we'll take the time and learn from him. And As you dig in, quote-unquote, to the word here, read through it, too, at home. Go read through, read ahead. You'll see the word really speaking to you, and it will become alive. The page, the, our logo here has a Bible. It's supposed to be a Bible with the pages open and turning, and like it's active. We are actively in, in the word. So with that... Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, once again, we are so thankful for the, your word that washes over us. I pray that you give us and refocus maybe for us to come back to stand upon the word in everything that we do. Because by your word, we know you more. We can worship you with a more informed worship of who you are. We'll, we'll know you better. We'll feel like you're closer to us. You're as close as you can be, but sometimes we feel far from you. But that's because of us, not because of you. We'll learn different sides of you different aspects of you because you are God on earth, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, you sent your son Jesus to explain yourself to us. And Lord, the Bible says you are love. So help us to understand that, to feel that, always be led by the spirits because he illumines the scriptures so we do understand. We know the scriptures can be confusing at times, but Lord, help us to trust the spirit to show us, to shine the light, open our minds so we understand it. And help us to always imitate you in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.